The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. All right, so I want you to begin by imagining for a moment that you belong to a people that has been promised a kingdom. I want you to imagine for a second that you belong to a people group, an ancient people who from uh, the the promises that your uh, uh, ancestors passed down to you, you have been promised a kingdom, a kingdom where death will one day be no more. A kingdom where all of your enemies and all of your God's enemies are vanquished, where they're rendered completely powerless. And a kingdom where God's people, though they suffer and though they are marginalized in the present, a kingdom where they will be vindicated. A kingdom where God's people will be planted in fields of abundance, where everyone will sit under their own vine and their own fig tree. A kingdom where swords like uh, weapons and AK-47s are turned into farming equipment. A kingdom that has no end, a kingdom that is ruled by a king who rules with equity, power, a king whose throne would never end, an everlasting kingdom, a prince of peace, we might say, a king on a throne with a scepter, shattering the nations like pottery shards, loving, caring for, and enjoying his people. All right, so imagine you're a people that's been promised that kingdom. And then imagine that you, are a, uh, you come across or, or you get wind of this peasant itinerant preacher who comes on the scene and he says things like this, the kingdom of God is here. That kingdom, that capital K kingdom that you've been promised by your ancestors, I'm bringing it, baby. I'm bringing it. It's here. Imagine that this preacher, this peasant, was preceded by a fire and brimstone preacher in animal skins who lives in the wilderness and snacks on locusts and honey. Imagine that this itinerant preacher, this peasant, was rumored to be a bastard child. And imagine that this peasant itinerant preacher was generating a following of the poor, the working class, and the sick. But something about this king and this kingdom that he says he is introducing is incredibly, incredibly powerful. He's giving sermons where he quotes your scriptures, you know, written by those guys that we already talked about who made those kingdom promises. He quotes those scriptures, and he says, you've heard it said this, but I say it like this. And it's mind-blowing, and you've never heard anybody speak with that kind of authority and clarity. And imagine that this man exhibits the power to heal. He exhibits power even over demons and the forces of evil. He even says that he has the power to forgive sins, a power which, by your estimation, is a power that only God possesses. And then imagine that this king gathers up his disciples, and he makes his grand entrance into the royal city. You're like, all right, it's go time. So talk about the kingdom. He's been talking about how he's going to introduce the kingdom, talking about how the kingdom's here. He's going to Jerusalem. It's going down. He enters the city the same way the great wise king of old thousands of years ago entered the city. He enters the city and he flips tables and he speaks powerful prophetic words and he performs these actions against the corrupt religious leaders. And then he says this over dinner. I'm going to die. I'm going to die and I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to be delivered up into the people that I just denounced. And this is what God will use to ultimately establish his kingdom. Through a cross, a sign of Roman brutality, a sign of Roman rule, sort of the sign of Roman rule, I'm going to be hung up on it and left for dry. And this is going to be my victory and my glory. And to make matters worse, he says this to his followers. Not only am I going to die, but you guys are going to stumble over me. 
You're going to trip over me, literally. You're not going to see how God's purposes are playing out through this, and one by one, you guys are going to jump ship. And then imagine one of those guys pushes back and says, ain't no way, I'm doing that. I'm, I'm, here, I'm, I'm here to the end. And Jesus says, no, even you will abandon me. And this fall, we're studying the final chapters of Matthew's gospel. Over the last several years, we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew, taking it chunk by chunk. And in this final section of the gospel of Matthew, we're entitling it The Crucified King. Because what Matthew wants us to see as we read through these final chapters, when he zooms way in on the, the last moments of Jesus' ministry and life, is that Jesus is a king we do not expect. And that Jesus is a king who brings about that kingdom, but he brings it about through the cross. And then what Matthew wants us to do with that is to see that that same calling is placed on our lives. The kingdom works itself out in self-sacrifice, humility, and taking up a cross, just as Jesus did. Now, the Gospel of Matthew, the, the, the word gospel literally means good news. The Gospel of Matthew is the good news about Jesus, according to a cat named Matthew, written by one of Jesus' earliest followers, this tax collector, who had been kind of gathered up into the Jesus movement in those early years. And in the New Testament, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all give four, not different takes, but they give four different flavored accounts of Jesus' life. Um, I, some of you guys know I have this weird thing about Teddy Roosevelt, and so I've read a bunch of random things about Teddy Roosevelt. And so that, when you have biographers, you have a guy who sort of accentuates this element of Teddy Roosevelt's life and then this element of te Teddy Roosevelt's life, right? Or maybe, you know, whoever that is for you. Uh, similarly, not exactly, but similarly, that's what the Gospels are doing. They're sort of telling, just with a little bit of a, a different angle, the story of Jesus in a little bit of a different way. Now again, in these final chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we're presented with, confronted with, the crucified king. God's anointed king who wins victory through death. And somehow, he says that God's purposes for the whole world climax in this violent, ignoble instrument of Roman brutality. The glories of his kingship are made known in his death. In fact, he says, it's always been that way, and it's always supposed to have been that way. And then the crucified king beckons us to turn our backs to the world, its glories, and pursue the glories of a crucified king. And I think that's what we're going to see here in this scripture today. So let's look again at Matthew 26, starting in verse 47. While he, being Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now the immediate context of this passage is that Jesus has left the Passover supper, the annual Passover feast with his disciples. And he's gone to the, one of his favorite places, the Garden of Gethsemane, to go pray. And what we saw as we looked at the scripture last week was Jesus is nearly overwhelmed by the weight of what's taking place here. Jesus understands what he is stepping into, and he, 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 we see demonstrated in the previous passage, Jesus' resolve to embrace the cross, the literal death that the Father has for him. And, and, and Jesus embraces that, and he demonstrates to his disciples what faithfulness is to look like, and then, stage left, enters his betrayer. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, in comes Judas. Judas, we're told, appears with a weaponed crowd, with religious leaders. You think back to the beginning of chapter 26, and this is exactly what Matthew sort of foreshadows taking place. 
We're told that after Jesus comes and does these remarkable things and gives these pro- prophetic pronouncements, that the religious leaders resolve, like, we've we got to put an end to this guy. We've got to figure out some way to snuff him out. But what we need is a mole. And then a couple of verses later, we're told that Judas, Judas, out of his greed or his, his discontent with the way that Jesus' kingdom project was working itself out, Judas, for a, what's frankly kind of a pathetic amount of money, agrees to be the guy who snuffs out Jesus for these religious leaders. And we see what Matthew foreshadows ultimately coming to pass. Judas, in verse 48, is called the betrayer. He's called Judas in verse 47, but when it speaks of him again in verse 48, now the betrayer. The betrayer. He says, the one that I kiss, that's going to be the one. That's the guy you're looking for. You know, presumably, it's, it's dark at night. It's, they've got torches. It's not super well lit. And so the sign, Judas says, is going to be a kiss. And then this moment comes for, becomes for us what's kind of the archetypal picture of betrayal in the West, you know, in the Western world, right? Judas Iscariot is almost synonymous with treachery. To betray someone with a kiss, a, a very famous statement it comes directly from this story. We see the sign of affection and honor, particularly during this culture, inverted into this tremendous, almost unspeakable evil. It's used to mark out the one who's to be murdered. Again, Judas, we're told a few verses prior to this, trades Jesus for money, for what's like a day's worth of wages. And he's contrasted with a woman who anoints Jesus with this priceless perfume. He's shown as one who is willing to betray Jesus for relatively nothing. It's a tragic, tragic scene. And yet, Jesus sees this as having always been the plan. In chapter 26, verse 1, what does he say is going to happen? I'm going to be delivered up, Jesus says. I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders. Chapter 26, verse 23, Jesus says, one of you guys is going to betray me. One of you guys that I'm sharing the Passover supper with, a guy who's dipping his hand into the dish, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus says this is what had to happen. This is what, the way that it was supposed to be. This is catching, uh, none of this is catching Jesus by surprise. And then in verse 50, he says this, friend, do what you came to do. Friend. Jesus isn't surprised by Judas, but it is striking to me to see the use of friend here. I think we're given a glimpse into Jesus' heart multiple times in this section. And I think what this, is, this is one of those areas where we see maybe Jesus' kind of emotional life even at play. Seeing Judas, a man that he had loved and had dined with on how many occasions, coming to betray him. Friend, do what you came to do. Seems like Jesus maybe is even grieving the sin of this brother. Nevertheless, Jesus is marked off and he's seized. But, but this is great. You've got to love the drama that takes place here. As Jesus is being seized, there's one disciple who won't let this happen. He sees, that Jesus, he sees what's happening. He sees Judas betraying Jesus, and he's like, no, it cannot be this way. It is not going to be this way. Verse 51, and behold, Matthew says, behold. He's like, hey, eyes on me. Look what I'm about to say. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, shing, pulls it out of his sheath, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. He pulls out a sword and slices off this dude's ear. I don't know why he went for the ear. Maybe it was the closest appendage at hand. Maybe there's symbolism there. I don't know, but it says he went for the ear and he got the ear. Because this disciple seeing Jesus being betrayed, he's like, no, this cannot happen. 
Jesus, you cannot be betrayed like this. In this gospel, it's an unnamed disciple, but elsewhere we're told that it's Peter. Maybe Matthew is wanting to kind of throw Peter a little bit of a bone here. Give him a little bit of a break from all of the heat he's been giving Peter the last couple of chapters. Nevertheless, an unnamed disciple pulls out a sword to defend Jesus. He cuts off the ear of one of these men. He says, let's fight. It doesn't have to be this way. It does not have to be this way. On the surface, this seems like a really good move. Defending Jesus, jumping to Jesus' aid in his time of need. Surely Jesus is going to like, celebrate this guy and his zeal, right? Verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take, or for all who take up the sword, will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion is 40. 40 times 12 is a lot. (laughs) Do you not think that the father would send bukus of angels to my aid, should I need it? Watch this, he says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Jesus looks at his brother and friend and says, put your sword back in its place. For those who take up the sword, die by the sword. If I needed to be defended, I assure you that I could call down defense if I needed. But no, the scriptures must be fulfilled. It does have to be this way. In fact, this has always been the plan, Jesus says. Now let me ask, does the phrase, especially coming from Jesus' lip, take up, ring any bells? Are there any other instances in the Gospel of Matthew where we can hear or or think about Jesus saying that we are to take something up? Think of Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus tells his disciples that they are to take up their cross and follow him. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 16. Go ahead and flip to that. I think at this point it's really important to turn to Matthew 16. I'll give you a second, but you can go ahead and turn to 16 chapter 13. start reading verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, speaking of himself? And they said, some say John the Baptist reincarnated. Others say Elijah reincarnated. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, gunko Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on this profession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All right, so this is a huge moment in the gospel. This is where... We kind of see Jesus like, like willingly kind of unveiling who he is. I'm the Christ. I am the anointed Messiah. I'm the kingdom bringer. But then look at this, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He says the, the way that this kingdom is going to come about. The way that this king is going to do his thing is through cross. It is through death and suffering and then resurrection on the other side. 
That's the shape of the kingdom, Jesus says. 22. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. He, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is not the way that it has to be. Surely there's some kind of alternative solution, like we can, we can bring the kingdom to bear, but not through your suffering and your death. Watch verse 23, what Jesus says to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Can you think of any other places in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus has a confrontation with Satan that tells him to puts him in his place? Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, Satan comes to Jesus and says, everything the light touches is my kingdom. <laughs> if you want it, you can have it. You bow a knee to me, and I'll give you everything. And Jesus rebukes Satan. What Satan is essentially offering Jesus is kingdom minus cross. And Jesus says, that is not the way that this works. What happens in this passage is Jesus says, I am the kingdom bringer, and it's going to come through cross. And Peter says, it can't be that way. And, and, and Jesus rebukes him and says, that is the way. That's the only way. And in fact, that's the kind of life that I'm going to call my disciples after me to as well. Kingdom through cross. I think what we're intended to see in this passage, in this scripture here, is in the moment where Jesus is betrayed, there's a kind of chief denial that's taking place. And it's not even Judas who's the one doing it. Right smack in the middle of this passage, we're told that the disciple who takes up the sword, in his own kind of way, is denying Christ. Because he doesn't understand that kingdom comes through cross. Verse 55, chapter 26. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. He says, you could have done this a thousand different ways. You had opportunity. I was out doing public speaking. You could have gotten me then. This is probably a subtle dig to the fact that Jesus knew that they had to do it in the dark of night. And he said, no, ultimately you did it this way because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. This is the way that it has to be. And then, just as Jesus promised there in verse 56, the shepherd is struck and the sheep flee. And as we read the scripture, I, I think... The thing that we need to take away, what we're being given here is this contrast. That as disciples of Jesus, we can either take up the sword or take up the cross, and it can't be both. And as disciples of Jesus, our only option is taking up the cross. Jesus promises that you guys are going to deny me. And at the center of this passage, the chief denial isn't Judas, it's the disciple who takes up the sword, who takes up the same posture that Peter has in Matthew 16 when he says, it doesn't have to be this way. We can do kingdom without cross. It doesn't have to be this way. And Jesus, and Matthew, what I think he wants us to see is that is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of what it means to be a disciple. Our options are sword or cross. 
Because the kingdom of God is cross-shaped. It's a cruciform kingdom. It's a kingdom that's characterized by self-denial, Jesus says. It's, it's a kingdom that's characterized by death to self, death to the stuff that I wanted for me, and acceptance of the stuff that the Father wants for me. And it's, it's a willingness to, to let go of those things that I wanted for me in favor of the things that the Father has for me. Paradoxically, we might be able to say that Jesus says those who take up the sword will die by the sword. It's like those who take up the cross will live by the cross. This is where we find life. It's glory in and through suffering. It's down and then it's up. We're called to be a cross-shaped kingdom, cruciform people. People of the cross, not people of the sword. People of God's purposes and priorities and God's ways, not the world's. And so this means so many different things for us as Christians and as a church. This means that we're to be a people who are characterized by humility and self-forgetfulness. I think about Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where Paul says, Have this mind among you, the mind of Christ Jesus, who, though he was equal with God, did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped, but taking the form of a servant became obedient even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. And, and you guys should have the same flavor to your lives and to your interactions because the kingdom is cross-shaped. Kingdom through cross, through self-denial, through self-giving love, through humility, self-forgetfulness, sacrifice, generosity, hospitality, diaper-changing, etc. The kingdom is cross-shaped. I think in this passage we're intended to see the sword not necessarily as representative of, of, of government. Uh, that, I think that's an appropriate way to understand what the New Testament does with the imagery of sword. But I think we're to, we're to see this as man's purposes over against God's purposes. And we are called to embrace God's purposes for our life instead of the world's, instead of man's. I've always thought that if I had the opportunity to, well, I, I may have shared this story with you, church, before. I did have the opportunity to teach a bunch of college students once and it was a huge failure. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. Steph was there. Can't believe she still associates with me. Emily was there. She's very supportive. It was a huge failure. If I ever get the opportunity to do it again, to, to speak with college students, I think I would want to speak on something like, have you, have you ever heard the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a very important question to wrestle through. I, I want to wrestle with the question, why do boring things happen to good people? Why do boring things happen to good people? Why is it that when you get a full-time job, after you step into adulthood and you clock in for the first time, you have that kind of realization where it's like 40 hours a week of this, huh? That's what, I, that's what, that's what life is, I suppose. And I guess it's going to be that way until I'm not here anymore, until Christ returns, whichever comes first. I would say that for many of us, uh, our church is a relatively young church, and I would say for many of us, there's probably been this point in adulthood where it sort of hits us. This is kind of what the deal is going to be. This is kind of what life is going to look like. And if you, if you went back to what, you know, 16-year-old me or 20-year-old me was kind of dreaming up and kind of cooking up for myself, it wasn't this, right? I think something that we need to recognize is that the Lord Jesus and his goodness and grace and sovereignty gives us lives that we don't expect. And frankly, oftentimes, he gives us lives that we don't want. And he invites us, not as one who went before us and who lived this out, to be faithful to where the Father has put us and what he has called us to, exactly, exactly where he put us, by, by the help of his Holy Spirit, right where he has placed us. 
God wants you to live a good life. And by a good life, it means a life with, that is marked by self-emptying love, embracing the things that God has planned for you that you probably wouldn't pick for yourself, and trusting that the Lord God will work it all out in the end, and that you live for another world. That on the other side of this cross, and on the, the other side of this life I didn't expect or want, that I will be glorified as Christ is glorified. We live our lives not by worldly metrics, but by kingdom metrics. Not the world's take on beauty and success and significance. We live by kingdom metrics, by kingdom measures of greatness, by kingdom measures of, of goodness and joy in life. We don't take up the sword, we take up the cross. I think this does mean for us also that our politics are relativized. You know, I was talking, um, I've talked with many of you about these issues over the course of the last months. There's a way to talk about the fact that we are kingdom citizens, that we are kingdom people. There's, there's a way to talk about that that just is not helpful. You've probably experienced that before. Say things like, we're kingdom people, we, we live for another world, the kingdom is spiritual. There's a, there's a way to say that that's just generally not helpful that doesn't recognize what's actually at stake. It doesn't understand how complex these issues are. It doesn't recognize that Christians have wrestled through the relationship between church and state for a really long time. Sometimes we use it as a kind of magic wand to wave over the issue because it's nicer than saying, shut up or stop talking about it. So there, there's a way to say that that's, just, that's not helpful. But then there's also a way to look at all of the atrocities in the world, to look at the chaos of our political system, to look at all of the things that are happening in 2021 America, there's a way to look at that and then say, I belong to another kingdom, the kingdom is spiritual, my life is cross-shaped, not sword-shaped, that is deeply, deeply profound. We take up crosses, not swords. We don't hope in chariots and horses, we hope in God and his otherworldly kingdom. And so what that helps us do is to do politics with the volume way down because we are cross people. We are called to invest our lives in anticipation of another life on the other side of all of this. We empty ourselves as Christ did and entrust our fate to God as Jesus did. We, we give ourselves to God no matter what, taking our crosses, embracing the life that he has given us as if he's a father with a good plan and a good hand. Even walking into our death because we live for a glory that is to come. All right, so imagine you belong to a people who have been promised a kingdom. A kingdom where death is no more and God's enemies are defeated. Where God's enemies are completely powerless. A kingdom where God's people are vindicated, where they're planted in fields of abundance, everyone's sitting under their own fig tree, where the swords, where weapons, AK-47s, are turned into farming equipment, and at the center is a king who rules with equity, power, a king whose throne would know no end, a prince of peace, a king with a throne and a scepter who shatters the nations like pottery shards. And then imagine that that king embraced death on a cross for his people to give his people access to that kingdom. Because if he hadn't, we would be the enemies that God vanquishes. The good news of the gospel is that it's kingdom through cross. We would have no access to this life with God for eternity if not for cross, if not for Jesus' willingness to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, for us. So this evening I recognize that each of us carry hurts and burdens and joys and fears and all manner of things into this room this evening. 
But in these scriptures, we are confronted with Jesus, a savior of immense and immeasurable mercy and compassion who offers us life and love and happiness. The fullness of joy that's achieved through following after him by taking up his cross and trusting ourselves to the Father. One of my hopes this evening is if, as we, and this week as we read the scripture and reflect on the scripture, it is our prayer that we would, that, that the Holy Spirit would work in us exactly what that means for us, exactly where Jesus has put us to be cross, not sword people. To entrust ourselves to God's purposes for us and, and reject and stiff arm the world's purposes for us. And may there be a kind of just weird, compelling magnetism that comes from a people who are just caught up in another world. May that be the case of the church at Greer Station. In your bulletins, you'll find there are a couple of reflection questions. This is something that we try and, and do each week, resource the body with things to just sort of think on and reflect on. This evening, as you go to dinner or as you hop in the car and, and head back to the house, whoever you're with, take some time to just talk through these questions to see Maybe what the Lord generates or what the Spirit kind of stirs up or draws to your attention through those questions and through this scripture. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you because you came to us. We offer our prayers and our worship to you as feebly as we're able. We do it knowing that you are compassionate and that you are kind and that on the cross we see the, the glories of, of your heart, the glories of who you are. A king who establishes this kingdom, who judges sin, who, who does away with all wrongs and all evil, yet doesn't wipe us out yet shows us forgiveness to enable us to see and know and enjoy you and the glories of your never-ending kingdom. We pray that we would, we, we would have hearts that are just caught up in, in who you are and what you have done for us, Lord Jesus. That we would respond with obedience and, and uh, joyful devotion to you, Jesus. And then as we consider the implication of what it means that the kingdom is shaped like a cross, that it's downed and up, that it's uh, death and then life, suffering and then glory, would you help us to see how you're working that out in each of our super particular situations and stations? I pray for our church. I pray that our life together would be cross-shaped, that it would, it would be characterized by generosity, hospitality, service, mercy, forgiveness. And that we would live by kingdom metrics, not the world's metrics. That we would measure things by the life of Christ, not by fill-in-the-blank influencer. Most of all, Jesus, we just pray that we would be a people of hope who have a hope 
for this other world, who, who look on all of the, the things that cause us to despair and for good reason cause us to despair. But we, could, could we have the kind of hope in you and the kind of hope in the gospel that we, we look at these things and we say, I, am a, I belong to a kingdom that is from another world and I place my hope in God over and above chariots, horses, swords, AKs, presidents, whatever else, Lord Jesus. We love you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.